This educational series is supported by independent educational grants from the following. AbbVie, Astellas and Pfizer Inc., AstraZeneca, Genomic Health, Merck, and Sanofi Genzyme. CME for this podcast is available at the AUA University, auau.auanet.org. Today, we begin the first in a three-part series on the evolving role of urologists in metastatic and castration-resistant prostate cancer. Today's episode will have two talks from AUA 2019's program. We have with us Dr. Steve Borgian. My name is Steve Borgian. I'm a urologic oncologist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The presentation here is about the state of biochemical recurrence following radical prostatectomy. Biochemical recurrence represents the earliest sign of disease relapse following definitive local treatment. Areas of current controversy in the field of biochemical recurrence include which patients should be getting androgen deprivation therapy with salvage radiation therapy. I think there are there are several clinical trials as well as retrospective data that demonstrate that there are patients that are going to benefit from the addition of salvage androgen deprivation therapy with radiation. It's likely to be those patients at the highest risk of disease, and there are continued ongoing investigations to identify those patients with high-risk disease. The second area of current controversy uh, and evolving data in this field is that of which patients should be treated with adjuvant radiation and which patients would benefit from salvage radiation. We have both genomic studies that inform this decision-making and two prospective clinical trials, the RADICALS and RAVES trials, that we will await output from. We will now take you to the stage of the presentation. So as a disclosure, I, I serve as a consultant for fairing and non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. The way I'd like to organize this talk is to first cover the definition of biochemical recurrence, what we know about its natural history, and how we might risk stratify patients who experience biochemical recurrence, and then we'll discuss the two most common treatment approaches that we have currently for patients who experience biochemical recurrence, what we call salvage radiation therapy and salvage androgen deprivation therapy. So to get started, how do we define biochemical recurrence? And I will say at any point in these types of talks, we want to leave you with what are our AUA guidelines. And so this is one of the take-home slides that I think it's important to understand and remember. And that is that the AUA guidelines combined with ASTRO define biochemical recurrence following radical prostatectomy as a PSA greater than or equal to 0.2 with a second confirmatory PSA greater than or equal to 0.2. So again, something to keep in mind so as a framework as we're talking about the biochemical recurrence. Now, that's not to say that there have not been alternative definitions for biochemical recurrence which have been put forth and are even often utilized. This was a study done by Andrew Stevenson with the Sloan Kettering Memorial data set, 3,000 patients treated with surgery and followed for four years. And what they did was they assessed the correlation of various definitions of biochemical recurrence with the outcome metric of metastatic disease. And they actually found that the best definition to predict the development of metastatic disease was a PSA of 0.4 and rising. Very similarly, we looked at the Mayo Clinic data set of 13,000 patients treated with radical prostatectomy followed for nine years, again correlating it with the outcome metric of systemic progression, and very similarly found that the best definition to predict systemic progression was 0.4 and rising. So what do we do in clinical practice? How do we take what the AUA guidelines tell us and apply it practically to the patient in front of us? I think a very reasonable approach to consider is a risk-stratified definition of biochemical recurrence. And along those lines, this was a subsequent study done by Andrew Stevenson using the Cleveland Clinic data set. And what they did was they took their cohort of patients who underwent radical prostatectomy and experienced biochemical recurrence, and they applied 14 different definitions of biochemical recurrence to correlate it with the risk of disease progression, and they stratified this based on the patient's disease risk status as predicted by Enomogram. What they found was they were able to generate curves that look like this. But the take-home message is that the optimal definition for biochemical recurrence in any individual patient depended on that patient's disease risk. So for example, if a patient had high-risk disease where their five-year progression-free probability was less than 50%, the best definition for biochemical recurrence in that patient was a single PSA greater than or equal to 0.05. 
On the other hand, if you had a patient with relatively low-risk disease where their nomogram-predicted five-year progression-free probability was greater than 90%, the best definition of biochemical recurrence in that setting was a PSA of 0.4 or rising. So I think the take-home point from this is that we may use a lower definition of biochemical recurrence in a patient who has high-risk disease, and we may use perhaps a higher definition of biochemical recurrence than the AUA guidelines in a patient with lower risk disease. And these thresholds are going to become important later when we begin to talk about how we treat biochemical recurrence. Now, I will spend one slide talking to you about biochemical recurrence following radiation therapy. That's a subject for an entirely other talk and perhaps even an entire course. But you should be aware of it because we do see this in clinical practice. What do we need to know about it? How do we define it? Biochemical recurrence following radiation therapy is defined by what's known as the Phoenix criteria, which are the Nader PSA that a patient achieves after radiation plus two. So that's the first thing to know about biochemical recurrence after radiation. The second thing is how should we be broadly thinking about managing this patient? The first question to ask yourself and discuss with the patient is, is that patient a candidate for salvage local therapy after radiation? And if the answer to that is yes, then the evaluation should at a minimum be an MRI of the prostate with a prostate biopsy to establish and define the presence of locally recurrent disease, as well as a metastatic survey, at least with a bone scan and perhaps, as we'll talk about later, with some of the more sophisticated PET imaging studies. So with the remainder of this talk, we're going to talk about biochemical recurrence following surgery. Now, um, again, turning to our guidelines, the AUA guidelines advise us that patients should be informed that the development of a PSA recurrence after surgery is associated with a higher risk of developing metastatic disease and a higher risk of dying from prostate cancer. So what do we know about the natural history of biochemical recurrence? Historically, biochemical recurrence has been reported to occur in about a third of patients who undergo radical prostatectomy. Now, as the management of this disease continues to move and we operate on patients with higher and higher risk disease, it's possible that we are going to see that number increase as well. But what's important to know about the natural history of biochemical recurrence is that it is quite heterogeneous, meaning biochemical recurrence nearly always comes before metastatic progression and death from prostate cancer. However, biochemical recurrence does not universally translate into systemic progression and death from prostate cancer. Patients with biochemical recurrence are often older and have competing risks of mortality. And in fact, one study demonstrated that men who experience biochemical recurrence are as likely to die in 15 years from their competing causes of mortality as they are to die from prostate cancer. Now, that's important to put into context when we consider and discuss options for management. So what do we know about the time course of biochemical recurrence? This is one study that was published now 20 years ago in JAMA, but I think remains an important benchmark study for you to be aware of. It's known as the POUND study. This was a series of 304 patients reported from Johns Hopkins who experienced biochemical recurrence after radical prostatectomy. The unique feature of this series is that the historic management paradigm there was not to treat patients who experience biochemical recurrence with salvage therapies such as radiation or androgen deprivation until they develop bone metastatic disease. So this is really a true natural history cohort. What they found was that a third of the patients in their series with biochemical recurrence develop metastatic disease. And what are very commonly quoted time thresholds, the median time from biochemical recurrence to the development of metastatic disease was eight years. The median time from metastatic disease to death was five years. So commonly quoted biochemical recurrence to death from prostate cancer is 13 years. Now, with all that we're going to talk about in the course today, this remains a moving target. But these are some baseline benchmark numbers, and I think they emphasize the prolonged natural history and the importance of considering competing risks of mortality. Hopkins updated its data several years later in JAMA, now with 379 men, longer follow-up out to 10 years, and what they found was that the 15-year cancer-specific survival after biochemical recurrence was 55%. So another kind of benchmark number to keep in mind about the subsequent natural history of these patients. 
So when we begin to think about treatment of biochemical recurrence, we ask the question, can instituting salvage therapy among patients who experience biochemical recurrence change that natural history? So with that question in mind, we looked at our data set at Mayo Clinic of over 2,400 patients who experienced biochemical recurrence with a median follow-up of 11 years. And what we found was that the 15-year cancer-specific survival was 84%. Now, again, these are different cohorts of patients, so they can't be directly compared. But what might account for that difference in cancer-specific survival is the greater use as an institutional management paradigm of salvage therapies in this series where over a quarter of patients were treated with some form of salvage therapy at the time of biochemical recurrence. In fact, Hopkins has itself looked at the institution of salvage local therapies. This was a study published in JAMA now over 10 years ago of patients who experienced biochemical recurrence, about a third of whom did get salvage radiation therapy. And what they found was that the use of salvage radiation was associated with a significantly lower risk of death from prostate cancer and a significantly lower risk of all-cause mortality. So these are not prospective clinical trial data, but they are important sort of natural history observational cohort data that suggest to us the signal that instituting salvage therapy at the time of biochemical recurrence may interrupt the natural history and thereby improve survival. So how do we risk stratify patients who have biochemical recurrence? Obviously, not everybody with a detectable PSA following surgery is at the same risk of developing subsequent metastatic progression. Coming back to that, that pound study that I showed you earlier uh, that was published from Hopkins in JAMA, these were the variables that they found were significantly associated with the development of metastatic disease among men with biochemical recurrence. Shorter time from surgery to the development of biochemical recurrence, higher Gleason score at the surgery, more advanced tumor stage, and more rapid PSA doubling time. So readily available clinical pathologic parameters. And what's interesting now is that 20 years later, the EAU just did a systemic review and meta-analysis of variables associated with biochemical recurrence. And what did they find? Gleason score and rapid PSA doubling time. And they've actually now proposed EAU risk groups of biochemical recurrence based on those two factors. And here we have it 20 years ago. Um, Stevenson published a subsequent follow-up study trying to quantify this and providing us with a risk tool that we may consider for clinical practice. They had 2,200 patients with biochemical recurrence followed for about four years, and they developed this nomogram that's available to risk stratify patients for counseling and deciding about salvage therapies. What are the features that predict death from prostate cancer among men who experience biochemical recurrence? Older age, importance of competing risk, shorter time from surgery to the development of biochemical recurrence, more rapid PSA doubling time, higher pathologic Gleason score, and more advanced tumor stage. So again, you can see very consistently across different series the same risk variables for the development of metastatic disease and death from prostate cancer among patients who experience biochemical recurrence. So with that, now let's turn to how can we treat patients who we have identified with biochemical recurrence? And I have subtitled this here, you can see in parentheses, early salvage radiation, because again, looking at the guidelines, they tell us patients should be informed that the effectiveness of radiotherapy for PSA recurrence is greatest when given at a low level of PSA. Now, what level of PSA currently defines early salvage radiation therapy? Again, there is no consistent consensus, but I will tell you the most current rough estimate is at a PSA of 0.5 or less, is typically what is used to define early salvage radiation therapy. And I'll show you some data that support that. This was a study that was published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology from the Radiation Oncology Group at Mayo Clinic. You will sadly notice there are no urology authors, but perhaps that's a topic for later. Anyway, this is reporting their experience in salvage radiotherapy for patients who experience biochemical recurrence. They had 1,100 patients who were followed for nine years, so large data set with robust follow-up. What they found was that 50% of patients who got salvage radiation therapy for biochemical recurrence remained biochemical recurrence-free at five years, and I think that's a number I would recommend keeping in mind because that is commonly quoted and has been reproduced. What is the response to salvage radiation therapy in all comers? It's about 50%. Only a third, though, maintained biochemical recurrence-free survival at 10 years. And when they looked at the development of metastatic disease and cancer mortality, the key prognostic feature 
was the PSA at the time at which patients received their salvage radiation therapy, and the key cut point was 0.5, which again supports that early salvage definition, PSA less than 0.5. These are the cumulative incidence curves from that study. You can see that patients who received their salvage radiation therapy with a PSA less than 0.5 had a significantly lower risk of subsequent biochemical recurrence, distant metastatic disease, and death from prostate cancer. So the bottom line here is that if you're going to use salvage radiation therapy, earlier is better. Um, this was a subsequent study from a multicenter experience of over 2,400 patients who got salvage radiation therapy for biochemical recurrence. Again, very similarly, what was the five-year biochemical recurrence-free survival after salvage radiation? It was 50%, or here 56%. But the nice thing about this study was that it went one step further and specifically quantified the individual biochemical recurrence-free survival depending on the PSA when you got your salvage radiation. So if you got salvage radiation at a PSA less than 0.2, your five-year biochemical recurrence was actually 70%. PS 0 0.2 to 0 0.5, 63%, and then subsequently down from there. So again, emphasizing the importance of the PSA at the time that a patient gets salvage radiation, earlier is better. They all looked on a multivariable model at variables associated with subsequent metastatic progression. And again, it's the classic uh, players here. You can see Gleason score, tumor stage, PSA doubling time. And again, they have a nomogram that is available for your use should you want to specifically quantify and risk stratify uh, for counseling patients' development of metastatic disease following salvage radiotherapy. Now, what about using androgen deprivation with salvage radiotherapy? This is a very hot area of investigation, and we have some exciting prospective level one evidence to guide us that I think it's very important for you to be aware of, and I'll, I'll show you the two studies. This was a study that was done by the French Jetta Group and was published in Lancet Oncology. What they did was they randomized patients who were receiving salvage radiation to six months of, of an LHRH agonist or not, gosarelin. The primary endpoint in the trial was progression-free survival. They had over 700 patients and followed them for five years. And what they found was that adding six months of gosarelin to patients getting salvage radiation therapy was associated with a significant improvement in patients' subsequent progression-free survival. So clearly demonstrating a benefit to adding androgen deprivation therapy, at least here for six months, to salvage radiation therapy. This was the forest plot from their study, basically demonstrating that nearly every subgroup that they looked at derived a benefit from adding ADT onto salvage radiotherapy. Only a minority of the patients in the trial, 18 patients, got IMRT, so they can't quite extrapolate it to that cohort. But in general, patients in this series all seem to derive a benefit from six months of ADT with salvage radiation. This was a separate study that was published uh, by Shipley and the group from MGH. It's gotten a lot of attention and press from the New England Journal of Medicine. Similar randomized trial, salvage radiation therapy, but here they used two years of oral bicalutamide at a dosage of 150 milligrams daily. So attention to that dose because it is not something that we currently use. Primary endpoint, overall survival, 760 patients, follow-up 13 years. Big trial, long-term follow-up, excellent primary endpoint. And bottom line, what did they show? They showed that adding two years of 150 milligrams of bicalutamide was associated with a significant improvement in overall survival and a significantly decreased risk of death from prostate cancer compared to just salvage radiotherapy alone. They also had a forest plot to try to identify what cohort of patients might best benefit from adding androgen deprivation therapy onto their salvage radiation. And one of the interesting things that has been much discussed from this trial is that patients who got what we have now called this early salvage radiation, PSA here less than 0.7, did not seem to benefit from adding the two years of bicalutamide onto their salvage radiation. And it's led to a lot of confusion about who should get salvage androgen deprivation therapy with radiation and who should not. Um, because of that continued debate, we participated in a multi-institutional study with a cohort in Europe of 525 patients getting salvage radiation therapy, a third of whom got androgen deprivation therapy. And with long-term follow-up, basically what we found in the study was that the patients who derived a significant benefit from adding ADT onto salvage radiation 
are those with the highest risk disease. And in this study, it was patients with PT3B, seminal vesicle invasion, or T4, patients with grade group greater than or equal to four, and patients who got salvage radiation at a PSA greater than or equal to 0.4. So I think collectively from the three studies, the take-home point to leave you with about ADT with salvage radiation is that, yes, there is prospective level one evidence demonstrating that it's of benefit. Who is it likely to benefit? Patients with the highest risk disease. How are those patients with high risk disease being defined? Continues to be a moving target, and it's actually an exciting area of ongoing investigation with genomic clinical trials as well. Now, no talk about salvage radiation would be complete without at least discussing in one slide adjuvant radiation. It's also important for you to be aware of adjuvant radiation because this is an area in our field where we have three prospective randomized clinical trials, uh, one from the EORTC, one from a German group, and one from the SWA group, all demonstrating significant improvement in biochemical recurrence-free survival with adjuvant radiation. Uh, one trial also improved metastasis-free and overall survival. However, when you look at national practice patterns across the U.S., adjuvant radiation therapy in prostate cancer is very rarely utilized. Why? Because the cohorts of these trials were quite heterogeneous, and therefore they have been criticized, because two-thirds of the two out of the three trials only demonstrated an improvement in biochemical recurrence-free survival, because one-third of the patients in these trials actually had a detectable PSA, and so this was kind of early salvage and not quite adjuvant. But I think most importantly and relevant for this course, these trials did not compare adjuvant radiation versus early salvage, which is what we have been talking about. And that's the most common criticism of all of the adjuvant therapy trials. So it's important to be aware of them. Where are we going to go in the future with this? Well, as we have seen in many different stages of prostate cancer, it is likely that genomics will help guide us uh, on the use of subsequent uh, uh, therapies here. And we actually do have some data on this. This was a study that combined Mayo and Thomas Jefferson data to, to look at a genomic classifier for selecting patients for secondary therapy after surgery. They found that this classifier, the decipher score, was independently associated with the risk of metastatic disease. And what was interesting was that patients in this series who had a low genomic classifier score had no difference in developing metastatic disease, whether they had gotten adjuvant or salvage radiation therapy. But patients with a high genomic classifier score, those at the highest risk disease, had a significantly lower rate of metastatic disease in the cohort that got adjuvant compared to salvage. And these are the cumulative incidence curves from that study. Low-risk disease, doesn't matter whether you got adjuvant or salvage. High-risk disease, the adjuvant patients did better. Now, these are hypothesis-generating type retrospective data um, that need continued prospective validation. There has been one subsequent publication which did validate these data. But I think most excitingly here, we have two randomized trials that have not yet been reported but that are directly addressing this question of interest adjuvant versus early salvage. There is the radicals trial from the MRC and Canada and the RAVES trial from Australia and New Zealand. So I think over the next couple of years, as these trials report out, we're going to have a lot of exciting data to discuss and inform our decision making in the area of adjuvant and salvage radiation therapy. In the last couple of minutes, I'll cover a salvage androgen deprivation therapy for biochemical recurrence. Here we have two retrospective and one prospective trial. This is a study that's 15 years old but continues to get quoted, so I think it's important that you're aware of, led by Judd Mal and uh, the CPDR military uh, cohort of 1,300 patients with biochemical recurrence, a quarter of whom got androgen deprivation therapy before they developed metastatic disease. Follow-up here was just about five years. What did they found? They found in the overall cohort of patients with biochemical recurrence, salvage androgen deprivation therapy did not delay the development of metastatic disease, but that in cohorts of patients defined as high risk based on Gleason 8 to 10 or PSA doubling time less than a year, early androgen deprivation therapy did delay the development of metastatic disease. So the high risk cohort may have benefited in this retrospective series. We looked at our data set at Mayo Clinic in a matched cohort analysis of salvage androgen deprivation therapy at a variety of different PSA threshold triggers, 0.4, 1, and 2. And with a median follow-up of 10 years, we actually found no significant difference in the development of metastatic disease or cancer-specific survival. So again, retrospective data with some conflicting results. Here again, we do have a prospective trial, and each time we have a prospective trial in urology, I do think it's important that you are aware of it. This trial has a, a, a catchy name as the TOAD trial, again from Australia and New Zealand. The trial took 293 patients 
the majority of whom had biochemical recurrence after definitive local therapy. Primarily in this trial, it was after radiation, but there were surgery patients here. The trial randomized patients to early androgen deprivation therapy versus delayed, which was ideally at two years androgen deprivation therapy, followed them for five years. And what the trial found was that the five-year overall survival was significantly better in patients randomized to early androgen deprivation therapy versus delayed androgen deprivation therapy. So again, we put the trial before you so that you are aware of the level one evidence. I will tell you that this trial has been widely criticized and is largely dismissed. It was closed early to accrual, so the numbers are not at, at what the trial's target accrual was. The trial actually did not show a benefit in prostate cancer-specific mortality um, with the use of early androgen deprivation therapy. And in fact, it basically bought patients one year off ADT because the majority of the delayed patients instituted therapy at one year. And to be fair and put this all in context and set up the talks for later this, uh, in, in the sessions here, the field of biochemical recurrence continues to evolve as imaging evolves, and we're going to hear a lot about this later. The guidelines tell us that patients with biochemical recurrence should have a restaging evaluation. And as we hear and, and, and more and more widespread adopt these advanced imaging modalities, what historically was biochemical recurrence may in fact be early oligometastatic as we are able to identify lesions. So what do I want to leave you with in conclusion about biochemical recurrence? Number one, understand the definition. The AUA definition is greater than or equal to 0.2 with a confirmatory value, but consider it in the context of the disease risk for the patient you're treating in front of you. Know that the natural history is prolonged and quite heterogeneous, so remember competing causes of mortality. How do you identify a high-risk patient with biochemical recurrence, advanced tumor stage, high Gleason score, rapid PSA doubling time? What's to know about salvage radiation? If you're going to do it, earlier is better, ideally right now less than 0.5. Consider androgen deprivation therapy with salvage radiation therapy for patients with high-risk disease as we continue to define those high-risk patients. We have nomograms available to help you predict the outcome of those patients, and in the future, it may be a genomic classifier that assists us here while we have the ongoing radicals and RAVES trials to inform adjuvant versus early salvage. Salvage ADT, we have conflicting retrospective data. We have the TOAD trial, which is positive for a benefit in overall survival with early ADT, but in small numbers and widely criticized. So with that, I want to stop and thank you very much for your time and attention this morning. As a conclusion, we asked Dr. Borgian to expand on his take-home messages. So the take-home messages from this talk are several fold. First, I think it's very important that we understand the definition of biochemical recurrence. We need to understand the current AUA guidelines for biochemical recurrence following radical prostatectomy, which is a PSA greater than or equal to 0.2 with a second confirmatory value of a PSA greater than or equal to 0.2. Second, I think we need to also understand that this definition of biochemical recurrence should be interpreted in the context of the disease risk for any individual patient that we're treating. The next take-home message from this talk is the use of salvage therapy for the treatment of biochemical recurrence. Salvage treatment is most commonly salvage radiation therapy and salvage androgen deprivation therapy. With regard to salvage radiation therapy, the take-home point from this is that if you are going to use it, it should be done at the earliest possible time, preferably with a PSA less than 0 0.5. Our next presentation will be on genetic testing and advanced prostate cancer. Presented by Dr. Leonard Gamella. My name is Dr. Leonard Gamella. I'm the chairman of the Department of Urology at the Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia and also a senior director for clinical affairs at our Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center. So we um, are talking about the genetic testing for advanced prostate cancer and the important take-home messages from um, the genetic testing world are that we're learning more and more about how to use genetic testing in order to effectively treat patients for prostate cancer. And in particular, genetic testing is becoming very important for advanced prostate cancer because we've identified specific genetic alterations that will be responsive to a new class of drug known as PARP inhibitors, which should be available sometime in uh, 2019 or early in 2000. Um, and 20. These drugs are currently approved for treating breast and ovarian cancer, but identifying these genetic alterations known as BRCA1, 2, ATM, or check abnormalities in patients will make them eligible if they have metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer for these new drugs. So the genetic testing 
will help us uh, define the best ways to treat patients with advanced prostate cancer in the coming one to two years. Thank you, Dr. Gamella, for the introduction. We will now take you to the stage of the talk. This is a new talk that uh, Dr. Gamella, who's been, you know, really uh, spearheading urologists' involvement in um, how we can adapt and use genetic testing in our practice, um, has, has, so we're really pleased that he was able to help us make this slide set, and, and I'll apologize for the short amount of time we give him for such a complex subject, but we'll also have a case presentation uh, that'll also highlight this. So with that, I'm going to have Lenny come up and give a talk. Thanks, Mike. Um, we got a lot of information we're going to try to squeeze in in 20 minutes, but I'm going to do like the Holiday Inn Express uh, and make, try to make you all experts in, uh, in genetic testing for, uh, for prostate cancer because it is a hot topic uh, and I think something that we as urologists need to be more engaged with. So we're going to talk about some, before we get into advanced disease, we got to go over some of the basic concepts, some of the early disease considerations, some of the screening, and then get into where we're looking at the next two years uh, in how genomic and genetic testing is going to be impacting how we treat prostate cancer. So why is this all happening? This is all happening thanks to our government that started the Human Genome Project back in 1990 and completed it in 2003, a massive task that mapped the 3.2 billion base pairs uh, that appear in every cell in our human body except for the red cells. So with the completion of that project, we had a roadmap to go forward and fully understand actually more about genomics and the individual uh, base pair abnormalities that are present in, uh, in our uh, abnormal mutated genes. After that, some two interesting things happened in 2013. One of them was Angelina Jolie. What does that have to do with prostate cancer? She brought the concepts of BRCA1 and BRCA2, which were actually the trademark names of BRCA1 or 2 by Myriad, brought that to the outside world in her discussion about uh, the inherited breast cancer and ovarian cancer risk and her treatment with it. The same year, the Supreme Court weighed against Myriad and basically said, who had the lock on uh, genetic testing, the BRCA1 or 2 genes, for example, the Supreme Court said, okay, guys, these are naturally occurring abnormalities. You can't patent them. So in 2013, it was like the race started. Every company in the world that was interested in this area started to get into molecular testing, and that's why you've seen the explosion over the last five or six years of this area. So in all of medicine, the three main clinical genomic applications we see in medicine are for risk and screening, pharmacogenomics, and something that we've been very familiar with in urology, that's the area of decision-making for things such as the Parlaris test, the GPS test, and the Decipher test. We haven't been much involved with the, uh, with the risk and screening or the pharmacogenomics, but I'm here to tell you it's coming, and particularly for advanced prostate cancer, pharmacogenomics is going to arrive probably sometime in the next year. So let's talk a little bit about some basic concepts. So when we use the term genomics, we are really talking about genetic testing in the modern world. Old gene testing used to be uh, something like a single, uh, a single genetic alteration for cystic fibrosis or uh, um, uh, sickle cell anemia, but today it's much more complicated. Genome refers to all of the genetic material in an individual cell, but today we use the term genomics to refer to this whole broad area of an analysis of multiple genes and how they may relate to the uh, environment. So we need computational biology. We can't do this alone. This is not Mendelian inheritance anymore that we all used to be able to trace, uh, uh, trace a family tree. So here's just an example of what the native BRCA2 gene looks like. It's 27 exons long of this machine language, ATGC, all of these base pairs laid out. So you might imagine the ability for us to understand this really is beyond our human comprehension. This all needs to be done by very complicated computational biology. And for the point of clarity, when I use the term BRCA2, we're referring to mutated genes. We're not referring to the naturally occurring gene when we, when we have this discussion. There are abnormal BRCA1, BRCA2. 
BRCA2 genes, for example. So this is where we're going in our world. We're going far beyond histology and imaging and even chromosomal analysis, but we're now down to the base pairs. We're looking at individual tumor characteristics that are going to guide our therapeutic uh, interventions in the future. Basic concept we all need to become familiar and comfortable with is this, is this whole area uh, concerning uh, genomic uh, and genetic testing when it comes to uh, inherited prostate cancer risk. Um, and it's very, uh, it is certainly very, uh, very important. Germline mutations. These are things you inherit from your mother and from your father. Somatic mutations are the wild west of the tumor cell that may occur. These are important concepts because a lot of the work that we're doing in prostate cancer relies upon inherited germline testing, genes that are abnormal that you inherited from your mother or your father. So in urology, our domain of clinical genetic testing has been involved primarily with genomic testing of tissue, as we mentioned, Decipher, Prolaris, uh, Confirm, and others. An area that is more common in medical oncology than in urology is known as the tumor sequencing. This is the wild west of the somatic tumor. This is done by companies such as Foundation Medicine, Caris, uh, Guardian, where you actually take the, the tumor biopsy itself and do a genetic analysis to primarily direct therapeutic interventions to guide clinical trial. But what we're really getting more interested in in urology right now is this inherited genetic testing. We're recognizing that a lot of these mutations that cause, pro that, 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 uh, cause prostate cancer to become more aggressive are based on uh, inherited genes from our family. And these are the companies such as Invite, Myriad, Ambry, Color, and Strand that are all getting into this area, helping us do the inherited genetic testing. Again, this is our area, genomic tissue testing. I think in urology, we're all very comfortable with this, sending off a biopsy to get a, uh, a panel of a defined sequence each of these companies have defined their proprietary package of alterations that they're putting into their algorithms to tell you who has the aggressive cancer, who's going to die, who has non-aggressive cancer. What we're going to be working with uh, in urology more and more in the space of advanced prostate cancer is going to be germline testing. This is your traditional buccal uh, smear. You don't need to have tissue for this. You can just have the patient either spit or uh, get a blood test in some cases, but almost always it's a buccal smear. Uh, lastly, in our completion of trying to get everybody up to speed, deep sequencing takes hours to days. And what is deep sequencing? It's also known as next generation sequencing. This was not available very early when the government was studying genomic testing. That's why it took so many years. And it was only available in the last two or three years of the Human Genome Project where chip technology was available where you can go back and analyze a sequence of base pairs repeatedly. That's what deep sequencing is. And that's the difference between expensive medical true laboratory gene testing and what you get from things like 23andMe to talk about your Neanderthal ancestry. There's a big difference between the commercial easy to get gene testing as well as what we do in medicine that costs a lot more because we're doing much more sequencing. We're going back over and over and over again to make sure we don't have an error. So a little bit more about the background about testing for prostate cancer. It appears that about 10 to 15 percent of prostate cancers today at all stages have a hereditary component. And I want to stress something very importantly. These genes do not cause prostate cancer. There's a misunderstanding that an altered BRC1 or 2 causes prostate cancer. It doesn't. However, if you've got some of these mutated genes, they act like an accelerant. They make the prostate cancer that you get a lot worse, more likely to be metastatic, more likely to uh, uh, end up with positive lymph nodes, more likely to unfortunately end to uh, an individual's demise. Um, why do we do this germline testing? There's a whole reason why we're doing this germline testing right now for risk assessment, for prevention, for prognosis. 
looking at your family members. You know, all of you guys have this, uh, you know, the opportunity. Somebody comes in, you know, the 57-year-old has four boys and they're, you know, 18 years old. What do I tell my boys? I mean, that's cascade testing. That's testing members of your, uh, of your family. But where we are with advanced prostate cancer is going to be in treatment selection. How do we pick the patients for appropriate treatment for advanced prostate cancer? These are some of the mutated genes that we've commonly identified. And I want to point out this mechanism to you. The mechanism here, almost all of these genes associated with prostate cancer have to do with DNA repair mechanism abnormalities. This is very important because this is how we're going to be directing our therapeutic in the next year or two. New agents known as PARP inhibitors are going to work with us in this area. The DNA damage response pathways, our genes are very good at protecting themselves, repairing themselves from either single or double break damages. And that's what naturally occurring BRCA1, BRCA2, and the others do is they protect your DNA. The minute you have a mutated gene, the ability of the cell to protect its own um, DNA from damage becomes compromised. However, as we'll see at the end of the talk, we're relying upon that DNA repair pathway abnormality to develop therapeutic treatments for advanced metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. These are just a few of the common prostate cancer panels that are out there from a, a variety of uh, commercial laboratories, but as you run down the list, you'll see while many of them have very common genes, ATM, BRCA1 or 2, CHECK2, a lot of them have other genes yet that we haven't completely worked out. And my advice is just go with one company, use their panel, and see how it works in your particular hands or in the hands of your genetic counselor. Now, if you look across the board at patients coming in with prostate cancer at all stages, these genes are not overly uh, are, are not overexpressed. You don't, it's not like breast cancer where this is a real large problem. However, what's very important to note is that when you have a patient with an inherited abnormal gene and they have prostate cancer, they need to be treated very differently than patients that do not have these inherited uh, abnormalities. And why is that? If you look at this famous paper on germline mutations in metastatic cancer, you will see that up to 12% of men have inherited abnormalities in these DNA repair pathways when they have advanced disease, whereas localized disease, it's less than 5% of men have these abnormalities. These germline mutations are very important. As I said, they are an accelerant. And if you look at men with a BRCA1 or 2 abnormal gene and you follow them in this paper from Hopkins over many years, you can see that the life expectancy of these men with these genes abnormalities is cut significantly shorter than those without. So the bottom line is this is not a common problem, but this is something that we have to be aware of because men who have these DNA repair abnormalities, abnormal BRCA1 or 2, or more likely to have metastatic high-grade cancer. More importantly, they are at risk for not only in themselves, but in other members of their family of developing other cancers, such as pancreatic cancer, such as GI cancer, such as melanoma, such as breast and ovarian cancer. Breast cancer, uh, not only in the male himself with this abnormality, but also in the female relatives of their family who have inherited these genes. As I pointed out, this is a much greater problem in women than it is in men. But we can see that as we study this more and more and more, you end up with more and more understanding of those subsets of men who have the aggressive, life-threatening prostate cancer. And I think that's the take-home message. We know that all men don't develop aggressive, life-threatening prostate cancer, but it appears we're starting to get some insight into those subgroups of men who harbor these genetic abnormalities. And as I mentioned, once you inherit these, it's not only bad for you if you get cancer, but it's also bad for your immediate family members. So if you look at men with localized disease, the number who have, depending on the study you look at, who have these abnormalities is relatively low. However, if you follow these men serially, they're the ones who get in trouble. They're the ones who develop metastatic disease, who have the high likelihood of dying from prostate cancer. So again, not a big problem right now, but one that we're getting our hands around. So where are we at right now for early disease? 
We have recommendations now from our genetic counseling groups who should undergo genetic counseling. And mind you, it's not every man who walks in the door with prostate cancer that needs genetic counseling. But you can see that there are certain triggers, red zones, hot areas, men who have more than two relatives under the age of 55, all guys who walk in with metastatic prostate cancer should consider genetic testing and genetic uh, counseling. This year, NCCN guidelines basically have thrown in BRCA1 or 2 abnormalities into the screening algorithm. This has not been in there before, but now we're starting to get some insight, like ladies with breast cancer. In urology, we're starting to get insight. A man with BRCA1 or 2 inherited abnormality. How do you know he has it if he doesn't have prostate cancer? Well, he's probably one of these men who had a sister or a mother or an aunt with ovarian or breast cancer and was recommended to undergo genetic uh, testing. That's how we're probably picking up some of these men today. NCCN guidelines this year, much more extensive recommendations on going ahead and doing germline testing in men, certainly all those with, with high-grade metastatic cancer, but also other men uh, who may have very strong family histories. And I suggest that uh, this is a great chart to keep around to decide who you may want to recommend to go on to uh, genetic testing. Lastly, how's this impacting localized disease? This, to me, was one of the most important uh, kind of visionary papers. Bal Carter's group looked at men undergoing active surveillance, and those men who have a mutated BRCA1, 2, ATM, one of these DNA repair genes, are the guys that appear to undergo progression. And this is something, again, new information, but this is something that may be working into our algorithms of active surveillance in the near future. Finally, let's figure, let's finish up with the, with the main message today with that background, and I hope you appreciate the fact sort of have to get that background before we jump over to advanced prostate cancer. Um, again, this is the uh, famous paper uh, by Colin Pritchard and associates up in Seattle that basically told us these DNA repair ab abnormalities are fairly common in men with advanced metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. These are inherited genetic abnormalities. Targeting these DNA repair pathways is going to be our next phase of advanced prostate cancer. So remember I mentioned earlier, these normal genes protect our DNA. What happens is the PARP is an enzyme which is important for repairing single-stranded breaks. So if you have a tumor cell that undergoes breaks, PARP comes in and fixes it and allows that tumor cell to continue to grow. Our new strategy is using PARP inhibitors to block the action of this enzyme that normally repairs these genetic abnormalities as a therapeutic uh, target. This is a concept known as synthetic lethality, where if you have a cancer cell where the BRCA2 gene is abnormal and the DNA repair is done, it's, the cancer cell survives. However, if you throw a PARP inhibitor in there, what you do is you increase the likelihood that cell's going to die. And in fact, this is the new wave of these PARP inhibitors that are out there clinically under clinical trials right now. They are currently available for breast and ovarian cancer. They're now working their way into our world of, uh, of prostate cancer. So these are just some of the selected trials that are out there, Rucaparib, Olaparib, Raparib, Talazarib, all the IBs that are out there, these are become, going to become as common to us as enzalutamide and abiraterone in the next year or two. There are dozens and dozens of trials out there looking at targeting these BRCA1, 2, ATM check abnormalities using the PARP inhibitors in advanced prostate cancer. This is one of the most prominent studies out there known as the TOPARP study where you look at the um, efficacy of olaparib in men with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer that failed everything. These are oral agents. These are not systemically administered, and these are likely to make their way into urology practices, into advanced prostate cancer clinics, because they are oral, uh, they are oral agents. This particular agent, olaparib, has now got breakthrough uh, um, therapy designation by the FDA, and we believe that sometime this year it will be likely approved with a companion diagnostic. Remember we talked about pharmacogenomics at the start. This may be, in urology, our first formal pharmacogenomic approved 
oral agent for prostate cancer. Now, to be fair, we have some pembrolizumab, which is actually approved based on microsatellite instability in prostate cancer, but this is very different as this is going to be an oral agent that can be administered in this area. The Galahad study out there looks at niraparib, and again, showing very prominent response to uh, BRCA1 or 2 uh, abnormalities. But I want to talk about therapeutic layering. What is happening, and you saw this in the early trials that talk about Stampede uh, and talk about Prosper, we're starting to add agents on top of other agents to prove, improve outcomes. So even before these PARP inhibitors are improved, we're looking at combination therapies. We're looking at com combining the PARP inhibitor, niraparib, with abiraterone in the magnitude trial. This is another trial that's looked, preliminary study looking at olaparib, plus uh, abiraterone showing a very positive uh, response to uh, patients who are not progressing. Um, there's the PROPEL trial, which is going to take this to the next level as an FDA uh, level three trial. Um, interestingly, and this is a little bit of a surprise, if you look at patients with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer and our BACA2 mutations treated with first-line abiraterone or enzalutamide versus the taxanes, this is a bit of a surprise. The oral second-generation antiandrogens seem to work better in these patients with these gene abnormalities than with taxane. So again, we're starting to get some insight on how we're going to be treating uh, advanced prostate cancer. We're even combining these ahead of the approval with agents such as PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors. Again, adding a lot of support that these are going to be very powerful agents that we're going to be using in advanced prostate cancer. When everything else has failed, we're going to be relying on these PARP inhibitors. Uh, lastly, one of uh, Dr. Evan Yu's colleagues up at the University of Washington is doing actually a national trial that your patients are all able, unless you live in New York State, are able to uh, enroll in to help us get an understanding of advanced prostate cancer, and it's known as the genetic testing for men or the gentleman study. I suggest if you happen to have a motivated patient, they can log in. It's all um, uh, IRB compliant all across the United States except for uh, in New York State. And you can get information into a central registry so we can get more of an understanding from a health population health standpoint uh, about these PARP inhibitors and about advanced prostate cancer. Uh, lastly, uh, we did a big consensus in Philadelphia in 2017. Many of the faculty members on this program participated. This year we have another one coming up where we're going to really focus on the practical aspects of uh, the genetic testing in men with uh, prostate cancer. So the bottom line for us is that germline testing has an increasing role in all stages of prostate cancer, but most importantly in advanced prostate cancer. And I think understanding the DNA repair pathway abnormalities, and remember, these are germline abnormalities. These are inherited from your mother and your father, and um, they have a very important significance, not only for the patient, but also for their children, their close relatives, um, and uh, I think it's something that in urology we need to get a little bit better understanding and work with our genetic counselors much more closely in the future. Thank you. After the talk, I asked Dr. Gamella if there was anything especially important or controversial that was presented during this lecture. So our current uh, status of uh, genetic testing in prostate cancer um, is trying to find its way in particular for screening. Um, it's not generally recommended that these genetic tests be used for screening for prostate cancer, but if you do have a strong family history of related cancers such as breast and ovarian cancer, in addition to having someone uh, such as a close relative with prostate cancer, we're starting to learn that maybe genetic testing should be done to identify if you're at increased risk. But right now, this is very controversial, um, and it's, it's uh, evolving um, day by day. But clearly, genomic and genetic testing for us right now are going to find their home in the treatment of advanced prostate cancer and using the new drugs out there to treat patients with uh, metastatic castrate-resistant disease. I want to thank Dr. Gamella and Dr. Borgian for their time. Thank you for continuing to listen to the AUA University podcast. Our podcast can be subscribed to and found on Apple iTunes and on Google Play. 
Please email education at auanet.org with any feedback or suggested topics. We look forward to hearing from you.